0: In the ancient world, the flesh trade was a dominant institution, flourishing in the light of day. The sex industry was integral to the moral economy of the classical world. The circulation of pleasures outside the nexus of matrimony must occupy the foreground if there is to be any hope of recapturing the texture of life in the late classical world and of experiencing the jarring gospel of Christian sexuality. Christianity gave a name to the array of sensual opportunities beyond the marriage bed. Porneia, fornication. Christian spokesmen for a time promoted the belief that the dominance of porneia was the sign of a world in disorder. And then, as they accumulated power, they set out with some diligence to repress it. The coordinated assault on the extramarital sexual economy marks one of the more consequential revolutions in the history of sex. Christians considered pornea a sign of a world in disorder. These are the words of Kyle Harper in his excellent book called From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. Welcome to each and every one of you to a biblical frame. Today we are going to be looking at a very consequential bill that has recently come up and uh, passed readings in Canada called Bill C-4, Previously, it was called Bill C-6 before they got it in under Bill C-4. It's important for the Church to talk about this issue because more and more, our world is looking like the sexual morals of classical antiquity, except that there's reason to believe that we've gone even beyond where they were, because today we, as Bill C-4 discusses, has have Uh, transgenderism. I'd like to read one more quote before introducing our guest for today, and this comes from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says the question that he deals with in this book is much like Charles Taylor's question in the secular age, how is it that prior to recent times, it was difficult not to believe in God, but today— it's difficult to believe in God. And he asks a similar question with transgenderism. How is it possible that we came to an era where we feel an incredible burden to affirm? He says this, For transgenderism to be coherent, the society in which it occurs needs to place a decisive priority on the psychological over the physical in determining identity. For it to be coherent also involves a correlative downplaying of external authority, whether that of the person's biology or of traditional social expectations. Biological and cultural amnesia must be the order of the day. In addition, its credibility is fueled by a powerful individualism and facilitated by the technological ability to manipulate biological realities. All these factors are present in contemporary Western society. To these, we might also add the notion that gender is separable from sex. A notion that gains plausibility again from the technological attenuation of the difference between men and women in the workplace, as predicted by Karl Marx. My name is Ed Gerber, and I am here today with several who are interested in this topic, and so I'll allow them to introduce themselves.
1: I'm de Silva, Trinity
2: Western University. I'm Steve Pellick. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia. Uh,
3: my name is Ian Proven. I'm a professor
4: of biblical studies at Regent College, Vancouver. My name is Jan Zimmerman, uh, professor of theology at Regent College, Vancouver. And I'm Douglas Farrell,
5: Professor of Theology and Ethics at McGill University in Montreal.
0: Thank you. As you heard in these introductions, we have at least three special and featured guests today, and we are delighted that you can all be here. Steve Pellic, Ian Proven, and again, Douglas Farrow, whom you've heard from before. Uh, we're grateful that you could be with us. Ian, I believe you've prepared a little something because you've put a good deal of thought into Bill C-4 and so we welcome your comments now. Sure, um, I want to actually segue uh,
3: off as opening comments about the state of the world and how we got here and, and the nature of the, the the culture in which we uh, live. Um, I think it's in, in a fairly obviously way true that as with many Western countries in what used to be called Christendom, Canada has historically been shaped in all kinds of ways by Christian faith. And this has made Christians feel very much at home historically in this country. Uh, Perhaps too much at home, actually, because I think it's probably made us a bit complacent and inattentive to the speed with which societal reality has been changing. Uh, This applies as much to the question of identity as to any other question. Uh, The question, who am I? I think it's true that until relatively recently, many Canadians would have agreed with quite a bit of what Christian theology has to say about this topic, and about how sex and gender are related to identity in particular. But this is just no longer the case, In fact, a very recent NANOS National Survey from 2021 makes for disturbing reading along these lines, especially as it relates to contemporary Canadian attitudes towards the guidance of children and teenagers concerning sex and gender. (coughs) For example, this poll tells us that only 41% of Canadians are willing to affirm that the parents of a child of any age should be permitted in law to, quote, discourage the exploration of gender possibilities and encourage her to be comfortable with her birth gender. The parents in question may well currently assume that it is their right and duty to raise their, Christian, their children as they think best in accordance with their own beliefs and values, but just under three-fifths of their fellow citizens are not sure that they agree with them, or worse, are completely sure that they don't agree with them. <coughs> A similar scenario unfolds when the person arises as to whether parents should be permitted, for example, quote, to send a nine-year-old girl exploring gender possibilities to counselling to encourage her to accept her birth gender. Even fewer Canadians, 38%, emphatically endorse that possibility. Again, the parents may possess the firm conviction that such counselling is very much in the child's best interests especially if they know the truth about gender dysphoria and how it typically works out in young people's lives. But it really doesn't matter what the parents believe, to to, to this very large number of Canadians anyway. Fully 27% of Canadians say that counselling should be illegal in such a case. Another 32% say they're not sure whether it should be illegal or not. And when we turn to the matter of sexual activity among minors... Still more startling news. Only 39% of Canadians believe that it should be legal for parents to discourage their 15-year-old son from engaging in heterosexual activity. Only 38% believe it should be legal for parents to discourage their 15-year-old son from engaging in homosexual activity. The great majority of Canadians either believe that such discouragement should be illegal or they're not sure whether it should be illegal. So a very substantial number of Canadians not only disapprove of parents discouraging sexual activity among minors, they are either certain that discouraging should be illegal or they're not yet sure, haven't made up their mind. Now, these are some, only some of the details from this poll. My general point is not to rehearse the entire poll, but just to point out this, that the poll reveals that a substantial percentage of contemporary Canadians support the criminalization of their fellow citizens for guiding minors, including their own children, in ways that until very recently would have been widely viewed as loving and responsible. And another substantial percentage possess no gate convictions on these matters that are likely to cause them to rise up in defence of people offering traditional guidance. What this says about the true character of the true North, strong and free at the present time, so readily inclined to laud our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and to boast of our tolerance and pluralism, that is, of course, a very serious question. On the face of it, it appears that substantial numbers of Canadians do not actually believe a word of it, at least as it pertains to the rights of parents to raise their children as they think best, the rights of teachers and counsellors to teach and counsel minors as they judge best, and the rights of the minors themselves to make parent-guided choices about the kinds of counsellors they consult. Now, I think that provides us with the necessary wider background against which to understand Bill C-4, and that's what I want to to talk about. Bill C-4 passed into Canadian criminal law earlier this year. It's a law designed to criminalise what it calls conversion therapy. As Ed said earlier, before Bill C-4, there was Bill C-6. Throughout the whole process, the government has consistently claimed that its intent in such legislation is only to criminalise what our Justice Minister called coercive and systematic efforts to change somebody's identity, coordinated efforts akin to torture. He actually used that word. In Bill C-6, though, it was already clear that the word coercion appears nowhere in the bill, while the word forced only appears twice, referring to conversion therapy that lacks an adult person's consent. Under Bill C-6, the only conversion therapy not criminalised was between consenting adults. The new Bill C-4 conversion has gone a step further, though, removing any distinction between minors and adults while sticking resolutely to a definition of conversion therapy that continues to avoid entirely the language of coercion. Conversion therapy in the new legislation is simply, and I'm quoting now, and I'm sorry it's a long quote, but this is what we have to do, I think. Conversion therapy is... Any practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, somebody whose sense of personal identity corresponds to their birth sex, C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So this refers to how you present your gender by way of hair, dress, voice, and so on. D, uh, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. And finally, repress or reduce a person's gender expression. In all of this, all reference to consent on anybody's part has now been removed. Canadian law now criminalizes any practice, treatment, or service of this kind, whether or not coercion or force is involved. An exception is made for a practice, treatment, or service to do with exploring integrated personal identity, although it's not very clear what that means, but only if it's not based on the assumption that a particular identity or expression is to be preferred over another one. And this reflects the something important in the preamble to Bill C-4, that in the opinion of those drafting the legislation, it is a myth, the word is used twice, a myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, etc., are to be preferred over other ones. I'm summarizing that a bit. This gives us a lot of insight into the religious, philosophical convictions of the drafters of the legislation and their pretty extreme hostility to people holding different convictions, including Christians, but not limited, of course, to Christian people. For biblical faith does not know of any gender, identity, or expression unrelated to biological text, uh, sex. And biblical faith uh, regards biological sex as given by God, not assigned by a doctor or a nurse. In fact, leaving the Bible out of it for a moment, it's just a fact that when a baby is born, its sex is simply recognized by those privileged to be present. They do not immediately form a committee in order to assign the child a sex. And so Christian faith does prefer a certain way of looking at issues of sex, gender, and identity, one that's deeply rooted in deep convictions about the fundamental nature of reality. The new legislation dismisses all of that as a myth. It does not argue it. It simply dismisses it in a remarkably offhand manner, stating its own preference for a different kind of religious ideology. Uh, The importance of this in terms of the legislation is this, that Canadian law now criminalises any practice, treatment, or service designed to do the things I listed. It allows no exceptions for people offering such things to those who disagree with the current government's ideology. If you and I possess convictions differing from the government in this area and we are offering practices, treatments, and services from that perspective, whether they be completely consensual or not, then since January 2022, you and I stand in legal jeopardy. The government of Canada has a religion, and everyone else better believe it. So it becomes particularly important, obviously, to discover what these practices, treatments, and services mentioned in the bill are. But we shall struggle very much to do so, and we can talk about the reasons why in a moment, perhaps. (coughs) The fact of the matter is that the definition of conversion therapy offered in this legislation is broad enough and vague enough potentially to criminalise a whole range of people, parents, religious leaders, counsellors, physicians, teachers, and many other people, ordinary Canadian citizens, following their ordinary practices, whatever they may be. And the point is, the legislation is deliberately broad and vague, It's not accidentally so, or merely incompetently so. All attempts to amend Bill C-6 in the last parliament to make the definition of conversion therapy more precise and to match the government's talking points about the bill, all of these attempts were voted down without exception. This is not legislation that's mainly about preventing coercion, bullying, and torture. This is legislation that is mainly about making it as difficult as possible For Canadians to exercise certain kinds of choices when it comes to sex and identity of which the current federal government disapproves and the consequences will be serious and I'll finish with these the consequences include will include but not be limited to the fact that many school-aged children in Canada will now be deprived of precisely the kind of counseling they need in the midst of confusion and distress about their identity The legal sanction envisaged for a professional offering any practice, treatment or service in this direction to minors is a very severe one, up to five years in prison, more than enough to cause many professionals to walk away from child psychology and child psychiatry completely, Mm. because now it is a dangerous and unpredictable business. Professional regulators can also be expected to take their cue from the new legislation, in advising or threatening their members to steer well clear of anything that even looks as if it might come under the heading of this legislation. And beyond that, anyone, and I'm quoting the bill again, anyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy has now committed the crime as well. This clause is explicitly designed to catch word-of-mouth recommendations as well as formal advertising whether in respect of minors or adults. So there might well be practices, treatments and services in respect of matters of sex and identity, uh, of which consenting adult Canadians might well wish to avail themselves. But the government of Canada has declared that whether they want to or not, anyone offering such help or promoting that help is also a criminal. And this is even though many of those testifying at the Justice Committee testified to many of these practices being precisely the practices that had previously saved their lives, including many adults who testified in that way. And what counts as promotion of conversion therapy? Is it a pastor referring a troubled teenager to a counsellor for help with sexual addictions? Could be. A parent recommending such a counsellor because he or she previously helped her child? Certainly. Certainly. The beneficiary of counselling like this, recommending the same counselling to a friend, yes, absolutely, but nobody can really be sure. It's very likely these are our crimes, but nobody can really be sure because the law is so utterly, abominably, poorly drafted, if precision is the point, which of course is a question. Well, lots more to be said, but um, I thought that introduction might be helpful, particularly to folks who don't already know quite a lot about this topic.
0: Thank you, Ian. Um, When you're reading and talking about the lack of clarity in the document, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton's quote that ambiguity always takes advantage of evil. And it looks like there's a lot of deliberate ambiguity Because it was pointed out to them. Bill C-6 had, I don't know how many calls for amendments because it was unclear and because we wanted to be sure what could be done under this bill and what could not be done. As a preacher, I think, if I'm doing a series on the nature of sin and indwelling sin, and I want to talk about sexual sin and the like of that and call people to conversion, as it were, to turn away from the things that beset them, I could see that I could get myself into trouble under Bill C-4 from the pulpit, because it could be interpreted as recruiting or promoting conversion therapy.
3: Well, it could, and of course it's not only a Christian issue or only a religious issue specifically, because a whole range of persons who don't agree with the government's ideology on this, including a lot of uh, medical professionals, they are just about equally under threat and maybe even more so given their prominence in society and so on and so forth and the ability of other people more easily to coerce them if I can put it that way so there's a lot of pressure coming on there and it stands to reason that you're not very likely unless you have extremely strong convictions uh, you're not going to take what you now consider to be large risks with your reputation your income and your freedom Um, the range of people testifying at the Justice Committee was an enormously broad range of people, including people from the LGBT community, included quite non-religious counselors and psychiatrists. It was an enormously broad range. What they all had in common
0: in the end was they were all completely ignored, every single one. People are afraid, and there's a lot to be afraid of. Yeah. I was talking to a parent just yesterday and their oldest son was um, suffering some challenges, and they were going to bring him to a psychiatrist. And she said that she was very afraid to do so because of how his experience might be interpreted and the loss of control that she would have as a parent over her child.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely, and this is part of the, the problem that already exists in a pluralistic society, finding people that you're confident in when they give you advice. But this bill has poisoned the well in a far, more, far deeper and more profound way now than it was before, I think.
1: So where were the Conservatives on this?
3: <laughs> well, the very short version of the answer to that, Ivan, is I watched every single minute of the Justice Committee hearings on Bill C-6. And uh, the Conservatives did a pretty decent job along with the Bloc Québécois representative, of asking really excellent questions of each other and of the witnesses and so on. When it came to the crunch, though, um, of course, the, the, the government and its allies have majorities in all of these committees. So basically, they closed down debate and just moved it all on. The only amendments accepted were amendments to make the bill even worse, by adding things like gender expression into the last minute. It got to Parliament. A lot of Conservatives voted against it. And then, Parliament, um, if you remember, uh, there was an election. So, Bill C6 never quite got there. When they came back, everybody was expecting, because it was a new bill, a substantially different bill that the normal processes would be gone through again, and we would have time once again to argue and represent. <coughs> Instead, what happened was that the Conservative Justice Minister, <coughs> to the surprise of many of his own caucus, moved a unanimous consent motion, not to, to do any of that, but to take Bill C-4 right through as if it had already been read and debated. And uh, not a single person, one person who said no... <coughs> would have defeated that unanimous consent motion. Not a single member of parliament did so. So the official opposition simply decided not to be the official opposition for 10 minutes. The same thing happened in the Senate. The consequence is we have a piece of legislation now in criminal law that was rushed through by a lot of people who didn't want to deal with this hot potato (coughs) issue any longer, including the uh, O'Toole Conservative uh, the Atul Conservatives. So it was a piece of fast practice on the part of the Conservative leadership vis-à-vis even their own membership, actually. Um, but it sufficiently... I think the Speaker of the House, if I remember, I was counting, I think he allowed five seconds for somebody to say no. And in that five seconds, you had to weigh up your career, your family and everything else and decide if you were going to be the only person to say no. And clearly, nobody had the fortitude or the quick
0: the quick-wittedness to actually do it. It it sounds to some like there's been a lot of political sleight of hand. And um, one of the methods was to move it. And maybe you could just help us understand how did they? Because we've seen it again. Hmm. Um, They moved it from Bill C-6, which I don't know if they let it die or fizzle or what happened. And then it was, it kind of resurrected as Bill C-4. And now we're seeing the same thing happen with reference to Bill C-11, which was allowed to die, Hmm. and Bill C-10. Well, Bill C-11 is very similar. I mean, it was, it was basically,
3: uh, in the end, rushed through the committee. Again, lots of really intelligent people from a very broad range of Canadian society saying why Bill C-11 was a bad idea mm-hmm. and they should amend it. At the end of the day, they listened, giving the impression of consultation, and then just basically voted it through. And, of course, what is there to stop this now? Uh, so you don't even really need to debate these things, it seems.
0: Uh, There's a common theme between Bill C-11 and Bill C-6 or B-4, whatever numbers they are, but there's a common theme here in terms of the suppression of the Canadians' right to believe what they want and also to articulate in a free speech way what they believe. Well, there's a, an immediate threat, I think,
3: to the very uh, institution of Parliament and to the very nature of our democracy. I don't think it would be too much to... That's not an overstatement, I think. Um, when, you, when you cease to get proper debate, when you even cease to get government ministers answering questions in a way that is not contemptuous of Parliament, when all of, the, all of these procedures in which we're so proud, history shows can be hijacked. By those who are brazen enough just to try and do it, if they're faced by people who are not brave enough to stop them doing it, and I'm afraid this is part of a much wider set of rather troubling uh, developments.
0: Yes Jens.
4: Um, in question, do we have a sense of what the level of enforcement will be? So um, as Ed said in the beginning, now as a, as a pastor or a youth pastor or somebody who teaches you know courses in Sunday school whatever, do you have to, do you have to worry?
3: That is something that many of us involved in this have been discussing for a while. Um, There have been conversion therapy bans at the municipal level in Canada now for a while, a lot longer than the federal bill. And there has not, to my knowledge yet, in Canada, been a single prosecution launched under any conversion therapy legislation. There is a view, and it may turn out to be rosy, that the main point of Bill C-4 is to frighten everybody, but not actually to take the risk of testing it in court. If that's the aim, they're having a good measure of success, I would say. Mm-hmm. There, there's a frozenness that has you know, advanced over the landscape in terms of people playing safe and not doing things and organisations closing down rather than being caught. Um, so, you know, anybody who does want to prosecute somebody for this will want to win they will wait as you would for the best possible case and we'll see what happens and i don't know the answer uh Jans, to that but um this is going to be a complaint based process right so somebody will have to complain the police will have to go and interview the, the that process will, will follow i imagine whether it will happen i don't know on the other hand why pass a law if you don't really intend to use it? So, jury's out on that. I think,
0: Douglas. I would. I know you've done a lot of thinking on this topic as well, and we don't want to forget you. Um, any thoughts about what Ian said, or uh, alongside, or anything else?
5: <clears throat> well, it was very instructive. Thank you, uh, Ian. I I, um, I think one of the Features of this series of bills, or this bill under a series of numbers, has, has stood out for me, and that that is that, that, first of all, there's, there's a major contrast here between the, the claims to which we became very familiar, um, that one's sexual orientation is fixed. Uh, to the notion that one's gender identity is not fixed and may change, and to which we've added the notion that it may change in one direction only. So the, the, the legislation is careful not to criminalize anyone who assists in the exploration of a change of identities in the direction um, of uh, a gender identity that is not considered cis, but it's criminal to try to assist someone to change in the other direction. A clearer marker of its ideological character would be hard to imagine and the incoherence of the ideology uh, is is evident as well. Um, so we would have to talk about well, what even is gender identity in the first place. I can tell you, if you if you go looking for an answer, you're going to have a hard time getting one that makes any sense. And what you will find in some cases is a deliberate uh, Cultivation of mystery, sometimes a very playful cultivation of mystery, but it's a bit of this and a bit of that, as, as uh, the inventor, the genderbred man, uh, or the genderbred person, I should say, um, said. So we, we've got legislation here that is not actually in continuity with earlier claims, which is plainly one sided and does not produce equality under the law. And which is so conceptually unclear, it's not just ambiguous; it's fundamentally incoherent. And so, indeed, that's an opening for for the kind of evil that um, that Jordan Peterson was calling out the other day um, in terms of the consequences for children. He he actually used the the image of sacrifice on the altar of adult uh interests and concern the young people of the of the nation who are undergoing horrific um, um, mutilations in the name of this ideology we could talk more about that too i'm sure that's only been up for about 10 days and it's been viewed uh one and a half million times so i'm i'm sure it's familiar to our audience
3: yeah, no, I think the the discriminatory nature of this law is something that I would say most people have not noticed because such as the water we're now swimming in, we find it hard even to notice blatant discrimination when we see it. And so you're quite right. It's uh, it's only really uh, robustly punitive and so on in, in one direction. And that's a problem. And in any sane world, this law would not withstand a constitutional challenge. But that only begs the question about whether we're living in a sane world or not. Uh, Every piece of legislation that goes through the Commons, as you know, or maybe your listeners don't, has to have a charter statement attached to it, written by the Justice Department lawyers, warning the Justice Minister about all the possible ways in which the new legislation might be subject to a charter challenge. Um, this particular charter statement didn't arrive in the Commons, I'm told, till several days after the thing was voted through. They couldn't even be bothered to get the order of the... In, in, in fact, I was told by a lawyer that in a previous era, the Justice Minister would have been forced to resign by Parliament for failing to produce such a statement up front. I've read the statement, though, and I think it, it should make very alarming reading for the people who like this bill, because... They're legally required to tell it like it is in such a statement. Um, so, you know, um, I, I have constitutional lawyer friends who are of the more optimistic and the more pessimistic kind on this. Some of them can't wait for a challenge. Others are skeptical about the ability of our Supreme Court justices to stand up even for the Charter when it comes right down to it. So.
0: And, it and it can't be judged out of order.
3: No, and, and, and of course for the poor person who gets prosecuted for the first time, It's not going to be much comfort to that person being dragged through the courts for five years or whatever it is that they were at the spearhead of this, you know, quest for justice and right and so on and so forth. So somebody, maybe more than one people, and maybe for all we know, many people are going to get run over by the wheels of this truck before we're done here. So, yeah, it's a very serious
1: matter, Mm -hmm. I think. So... Ivan, do you want to... I was just going to say, they say that uh, politics is downstream from culture, and from, the, um, from your opening there, it seemed like the majority of Canadians are fine with this. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, wouldn't that be the more disturbing thing, that um, mm. where did we as a society get to the place where we think this is okay? And so for many of those people, or for the, the alarming majorities that you pointed out, the government is doing the right thing. And, um, and in a democracy, the majority rules. And so it's, it's us who are in the minority, I suppose, and who have a different worldview that are having a problem with this. That
3: is certainly true. And I, I do think that we ought to try to persist in seeing Bill C-4, however awful it may be, merely as a symptom of the larger disease Mm. i don't mean by merely this is not really serious it really is but the bigger question i think goes back to ed's quote from the second book i think you read from about truman describe the landscape Mm -hmm. in which we live that landscape has shifted unimaginably quickly and radically to such an extent that most of us cannot actually adjust ourselves to it. We keep shaking our heads saying, surely not. You know, thing follow thing follows things and we say, Surely not, that can't be right. And then we discover, yeah, that's actually what happened. That that person said that, they did this. And I do think we're slip sliding civilizationally towards a very nasty place. Among other things, that poll confirms what I think we know from other things we're seeing, that a lot of gen Z or Z, depending which country you're in, mm. appear to have robustly totalitarian instincts of a Stalinist mm. kind mm. and uh of course. That's why some of this feels like the beginnings of a cultural revolution, the cancelling and, and all the rest of that, because it is the, the most recent example I can think of as a broad analogy would be the China, the cultural revolution in China, mm-hmm. where a, a lot of young idealistic people easily manipulated by power yeah. go on a rampage that is horrendously destructive in its outcomes Um I hope that's not where we're heading. I'd like to think our institutions were robust enough to prevent it. If I was asked, am I confident at the moment about that? I would say, no, I am not confident about that.
0: So So our Lord is on the throne. Christ reigns. He's ascended. What is the role of the church at this time of disorder and of confusion and culture at large? What I have noticed is that the Church is frequently just as confused as the culture because our primary um, catechesis, our primary teaching, is not coming from Scripture. It's not coming from the pulpit. Uh, Sometimes we've given the pulpit over to kind of a chicken soup for the soul preaching, and no further. Uh, Not a rigorous, robust kind of Bible teaching. So, how does the Church remain faithful to its Lord and— either gain b- back some ground or is Rod Dreher right that we need to engage in the Benedict opt- option and we need to remove ourselves for a time being so that we're not completely overwhelmed by the cultural narrative that we're swimming in? Whoever. Yes. Yeah, I was curious
2: in terms of uh, this bill, if you have counseling, Is that considered part of itself, by itself, really conversion therapy?
3: It could be. The way it's drafted, any practice and procedure and all the rest of that, tending in the direction at least of directive counselling. I mean, of Mm -hmm. of course, part of the problem here is what we even mean there, and does it come under the bill, because nobody really knows yet. But yes, in principle... um, even talking to somebody who wanted to talk to you about this subject matter, who is themselves not comfortable with where they're at and would like guidance and help, yes, a person offering that, because it's a professional person offering a practice, service, or treatment, could potentially come under this rubric. So If there's
2: a discussion, for example, there's a lot of gender fluidity in younger people, And then there's a lot of uh, peer pressure that's being applied. So in that context, the peer pressure, as long as it's not from a professional, that would be acceptable. But if you have counseling in the opposite direction, this could be subject to this law?
3: Well, the thing is, the bill, as we were saying, is discriminatory because if an adult wants to encourage you to have... uh, Puberty blockers or transgender surgery, that's explicitly not in the least bit problematic. It's actually positively a virtuous thing, apparently, for people to do that. So this is in no sense a level playing field. And uh, the people who talk about this behave as if things like peer pressure don't exist. We're so much in this individualistic zone. That they seem to think that a 30-year-old girl has 20-20 vision, is not prone to any pressure at all, is making a perfectly rational consumer choice or something. It's, it's, it's nonsensical to an unbelievable extent. And I think every sensible parent should keep their children away from such adults, to be honest. But they have enormous power and, at the moment, enormous social capital. They are widely perceived as doing good even though many of us think they're doing precisely the opposite of good. But the law is the law doesn't even pretend to be even-handed in these areas. It's an astonishing piece of legislation when you sit back and just ponder the matter.
4: Okay, I have to add on a question? I wanted to ask a similar question to Steve, which is, um, the gentleman malaise that we're experiencing, where's the input of science on this? I've at least two instances in the last month... Um, where I talked to clinical psychiatrists, and they each said that the standard treatment would be, although there are some very very rare occasions where there may be biologically triggered or caused gender confusion, and in, in most cases it's not the case. And the standard treatment is to realign, right, to to spend time, be very patient of realigning the the, uh, the the sexual orientation with the gen- with the biological. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the standard psychiatric treatment, they said, what what is being pursued, and that's also what parents are being told. So would that then be, under this legislation, a criminalized...
3: Is this for me or for Steve? Yeah,
4: no, for for both, I guess. Well, no,
3: it it would be a problem, and this is... There are so many astonishing things about this, it's almost impossible to stop saying, let me tell you another astonishing thing. I mean, there is such a thing as cognitive behaviour therapy. My wife's a psychologist, you know, so I know a fair bit about this stuff. That's precisely what that's about. It's taking the person as you find them who's out of alignment in some way with reality and helping them by various therapies and counselling and talk and so on uh, to to get back in, back within a zone here in terms of reality. Mm-hmm. If the logic of this, I am who I say I am individually and you have no right to tell me otherwise and I'll get you locked up if you do, that is the end of psychiatry, the end of psychology, the end of any idea that our professional classes are there to help people become well-adjusted, integrated, and quite apart from anything else, to help them to be sane rather than mad, because it seems to me the boundary between sane and mad is up for grabs at this point. Things like the age of consent for sexual activity are definitely up for grabs. Because if the child, no matter how young they may be, is to be treated as if they were the final arbiter of who they are and what they want to do with their bodies, this is not a stretch. This is you know this is not a stretch at all. I would like to know from these liberal friends of mine why they would be against lowering the age of sexual consent. On what grounds would they be in favour of that? The answer used to be, well, it's a child, and I completely accept that. We have a whole bunch of things we don't allow people to do before they're 18. Many of them are way more trivial than having parts of your body cut off in order to be like somebody of the opposite sex. There's a madness about this. There's an incoherence about it. And so, yeah, science, I'm afraid, at the moment, yeah, is, is, is as, you, as we've talked about, science itself is practiced by scientists who are themselves subject to all the normal pressures of society and peer pressure and that. And, and so a number of people who should be doing better in our societies, the guardians of these things, are themselves falling like dominoes just because they're scared. Or, or worse than that, they just don't care. I don't know which it is, but, but as a matter of fact, science, of course, cannot save us <laughs> in this scenario or anywhere else for that matter.
0: So so uh, Ian and Douglas in particular, um, but others can jump in too, I want to pull this back around to the question I asked a couple of minutes ago, which is, what is the call for the church in this time? What do we need to be encouraging our leaders to do To say, I
3: think Douglas should come in because I feel as I've spoken an awful lot, and so let's have Douglas. uh... Well, I think one thing that we
5: all need to reckon with is that this legislation—it's not the only example, but it's a very important example. This this legislation is explicit in rejecting um, anything like a biblical frame for thinking about human life and human flourishing so it it is it it doesn't specifically mention uh genesis one two one and two but it but it it clearly repudiates, on behalf of the entire Canadian people, um, any such ideas as are operative in those texts, and obviously many other texts throughout uh, the scripture, and not only throughout Christian scripture or Judeo-Christian scripture, um, but throughout uh, cultures, religious uh, cultures through, uh, you know, in, in, in history around the world. It, it, it is repudiating all of that. So this changes the, the rules of the game. It, 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 it changes the, the so-called social contract. If I am to be part of a society and under the laws of a society that explicitly repudiates my worldview, First of all, I'm not going to allow that society any longer to claim to be neutral mm-hmm. uh, or even to claim to be secular. I, I'm dealing with a society that has an, a, a worldview. I've already called it incoherent, but let's say for the moment it could be made coherent. It is a worldview explicitly opposed to mine. And it makes no provision whatsoever for me to continue functioning in that society. I think to your question that leaders of of religious communities who fail to recognize the new context in which they find themselves are certainly not going to find coherent answers as to how to respond so their inclination is going to be to keep their heads down and hope that it doesn't catch them out that there's no tremendous conflict of worldviews and of legal frames biblical or religious frames or legal frames in in their in their own immediate experience but but that, of course, is to abandon their responsibility to the common good. It's, it's to abandon the social contract on one level whilst trying to live within it on other levels that are more convenient. That's a strategy that will not work. So the first thing is they need to realize that the situation, it didn't just change with C4, but C4 is as clear an articulation of this fundamental shift as, as one could ask for. And so it's time they woke up and, and faced that. It's time that they began to think uh, out their new situation and how they want to
3: respond to it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've, I've been using the language of exile in the last several years to talk about this and the imperative that we understand the landscape of our exile look at straight in the eye see it clearly and we we don't want to look at it because we know it's going to be hard but the trouble is progressively and increasingly now we're being forced to look at it because the grandparent is becoming aware of what happened to the kid at, at elementary school when the teacher told a five-year-old that you, know, you, you can choose now to be whether you're a boy or a girl. And I'm not making this up. Again, astonishing, but not in the slightest bit making this up. I've heard this kind of anecdote now on many, many occasions in the last two years. Um, so at the point when... Our children, our family members, our church community members, in their work, in their schooling, and whatever, are are confronting this. It's just—it's not going to be avoidable. Actually, I can't imagine how it is going to be. And I think we have to be very clear-headed about what it means. Just thinking about the Christian bit, what it means to be the church in this new landscape. And what it means to be a, a lover of your neighbors as well, though, because the the instinct might well for, be for us to withdraw. I want to point out that that's to abandon all the children of our cities to the sacrificial altar. And so I, I would rather we also, well, I think it's an imperative that we also take the salt and light stuff really, really seriously and don't abandon people who are outside our tribe because they're just as confused and frightened as, as anyone else. Like the story you told of the mother being worried. And she's right to be worried, by the way. It's, it's not a false fear. So being, having a network of, of people that we do trust to give children good advice on these things, for example, opening that network up to other people who, who just need help. Um, so, yes, we have to be Except, the except of course, that's, that's the very thing they've criminalized.
5: Indeed so Indeed. Com, com, coming back to the question of the so-called Benedict op- option, um, if one interprets or m- probably misinterprets that proposal uh, to mean that that people can live in, in small religious um, enclaves free of this stuff, well, not <laughs> even if they could feed and clothe themselves somehow, um, they they also have to be able to educate and maintain control, maintain control of their own communities in such a way as to preserve them from the reach of a law like this. I'm I'm not so sure that that's a practical uh, possibility. So yeah. I, I, I'm not not in favor of of attempting simply to withdraw.
3: Yes. I agree with you, and I wasn't suggesting that anyone in this room understood the Benedict option that way, but when people tell me about it, they often seem to have retreating to the monasteries in the Irish Sea on an island somewhere kind of <laughs> scenario at the end of the Roman Empire, and I'm thinking, well, even if you could do that, which you probably can't anymore anyway, is that really the right thing to do? Isn't this more like the staying in the city with the plague victims when everybody else runs away scenario? And of course it's risky and dangerous, and it may well be criminal simply for doing the right thing. But as I've said to, I, I feel particularly vexed on this with minors. I'm sufficiently liberal to take the view that if somebody's an adult citizen, they should have a lot of freedom very likely in society to do what they want. I, you know we can debate that. Where where I'm appalled by this is is the 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 barriers to causing children harm that are now being radically and speedily lowered. Mm -hmm. And any conscientious person, surely, with anything approaching a kind of transcendental view of right and wrong, surely has to be utterly appalled and activist in in this area. And you see somebody like Jordan Peterson, who's clearly activist and passionate here, um, coming not from the same place as, as I would be coming necessarily, exactly, although who knows, but... So I just, I, I think we, I agree, Douglas, we, we mustn't withdraw. Um, and I, I think if if we end up going to prison for doing something good and right, well, so be it. If we end up going to prison for being a jerk, well, that's a different thing, right? But honestly, if we're not prepared to go to prison for the sake of children, I wonder what we would be prepared to go to prison for, to be perfectly honest. So
0: One, one of my great convictions about what needs to happen at the church is that pastors and leaders need to be emboldening believers to stand by their convictions, even if it hurts, even if it does lead to prison, Mm. that we need to be far more bold. I don't mean brash. I don't mean in people's faces, but that we say with Luther, and I think we are coming to a Luther moment, where we say, here I stand, I can do no other. Mm and particularly when it comes to this issue. Another thought that I'd had, somebody said, maybe this is a bit of a test for us. What is the ultimate end of something like Bill C-4? There's something in me that says, maybe this is a test for us. They want to get the field, and this is just one part of the field, as it were. Can we get away with infringing on Canadians' rights and freedoms here? If we can get away with it here, maybe we can get away with it at a much larger level. So well, it seems to me sure. that we're on the edge of a yeah. edge of a cliff here.
3: Well, you're discussing COVID later, and of course that's part of what's been going on. Things they never thought they would get away with, to the surprise they discovered they did. There's this, there's Bill C-11. What do all of these unlike things have to do with each other? Exactly. At the core of it, it's all about... Uh, legislating thought, legislating action, coercing, constraining freedom of thought and speech. It's all about that, with a virtuous goal in mind from the point of view of the people doing it. I'm not convinced we should simply think of these people as malicious. I think there's a larger virtuous goal here, which is saving the planet or reversing climate change. And what these elites have realized is that free societies are not very helpful when you want to actually have a series of emergency measures in play to deal with the crisis and, Justin Trudeau's favorite word, keep us safe. And I said to somebody the other day, the thing I've learned here is, when a politician says they want to keep you safe, you should run as fast as you can in the other
0: direction. I I bought a motorcycle.
3: (laughs) Sorry, Douglas.
5: Yes, um, there are a number of things there, and I, I hope I can get get them out in a way um, that isn't too complicated and confusing. But um, this this whole th- this legislation is part of a larger context that some people have labeled "safetyist." Um, the search for safe spaces. Um, personally, I I would take it back a bit further and say that it's also related to the the search for so-called safe sex um, and to the larger contraceptive mindset. But we, we don't need to discuss all of that here. If we come back to the question of what is this thing that they've legislated about, this gender identity, um, that that they don't want tinkered with in one direction, though they're happy for it to be tinkered with in a different direction. I raised the question earlier, what is this? Yeah. We know what sex is. We know that there are only two, although there are rare complications and overlaps uh, when something goes wrong uh, uh, chromosomally. So, But there are only two. We know what it is. It's objective, it can be measured, and as you were saying earlier, it's not a matter of assigning it at, 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 at when, when a child is born, it's a matter of recognizing it. It's an objective reality that's quickly and easily recognized. Gender used to mean just that, sex. It was It was a synonym for sex, or it meant a set of expectations around sex that a society had. So, women behave like this, and boys behave like this, and girls like that, and, and, and so forth. We, 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 develop, we develop stereotypes. Now, those stereotypes are sometimes, I mean, they're essential, and, and, and they're, you can't do without them, and they're always present, but they can also be harmful. So, a person who doesn't fit the stereotype easily can experience a lot of trauma. So, sex is a given, and it's a good thing. It's how it's how we are. It's how we exist. It's how we continue to exist. It's how we reproduce. Of course, as you were just saying, there, there, there's a there's uh, in some circles a, 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 um, a conviction that we should stop reproducing. But again, let's set that aside for the moment. Gender is is a is a cultural construction around. Um, Uh, the um, native and appropriate behaviors in a given society for the two sexes, that can produce problems. So when we get to talking about gender identity, we are sometimes talking about the people who experience social expectations attached to a particular one of the two sexes as problematic for them. But when we talk about gender identity, what are we talking about? We're talking about someone who is expected to think of themselves as, think of himself, let's use one sex here, think of himself as um, psychologically and socially adaptable to what is expected of people with his uh, chromosomes. Um, and who doesn't feel that way, who, who struggles with that, and who is necessarily, therefore, confused about various matters of, of uh, experience being embodied, being sexual, and fitting into society. And any anyone who cares about people is going to care about that and want to help with it. But when we invent this category of gender or gender identity, that is neither of those two things, that is neither biological sex, nor the set of expectations in a given society as to how those sexes function in their relations with one another. And it's not even merely the sense of confusion that some people have when they don't fit neatly into that category. What are we talking about? This bill does not tell us what we're talking about. It's legislating against a form of help for someone who might feel confused, and it is doing so on the basis of some positive gender identity that it never defines, Hmm. that always makes for bad law. I mean, if you can't define what it is you're legislating, it's legislating against conversion therapy, but it hasn't identified the thing that is being converted. Indeed. So this is a deep problem for the law as well as for for human psychology and human anthropology, and in addition, of course, the assumptions that are operating there without proper explication create huge problems as to whether the society we live in is capable of tolerating anthropologies and theologies and worldviews different from the ones driving this, and then. Last thing here. When we see the people who are driving this kind of legislation, which we know has the practical consequence not only of producing tremendous turmoil in families and communities, but of uh, mutilating children. I mean, there's a case going on right now uh, in, in, in Britain where it's not the only case, but it's a quite prominent one at the moment where, where a man who, who thought he wanted to be a, a woman um, uh, and later changed his mind is, is of course, uh, biologically as well as psychologically destroyed by this whole process in which he was encouraged by public institutions to participate. When you see that happening, and not happening rarely, but happening frequently, I, I, I think you're giving a bit too much credit to, you know, to the the, the, the people uh, who are driving this to say that they're well-intentioned. Mm. There may be an element of good intention, but they're also deliberately closing their eyes to thousands of young people being... Having double mastectomies if they're, if they're girls, being incarcerated if they're boys, they're closing their eyes to that. They are not dealing with that. And they are not dealing with the evidence that you did allude to. And that is that, that, uh, psychotherapy and, and psychology have recognized for a very long time that this kind of, of struggle with, with where, how do I fit in the world? And what, what should I think and feel about my own body? have recognized that this confusion is not uncommon. It usually does resolve and can be resolved, and it ought not to be going to hormone therapy and surgery as a means of resolving it. And I, I, I think at the point that, that people close their eyes to all of that, they, they lose the right to, to uh, command respect. This this is serious stuff. This destroys lives. So I I I, I um, I'm less sanguine, I guess, about uh, or less willing, I suppose, to to say, well, it's really it's really a quite civilized argument, and it, it's difficult, it's tricky, and and so you know we, we we need to give a lot of space for each other. But by the way, we'll put you in jail if you <laughs> if you take your child to someone who is trying to help them with their confusion.
3: Yes. Um, Do we have to come to an end here? Because the only thing I want to say there, Doug, is yes, I actually think it's wicked. Of course it is. I'm just saying that however strange and perverse it may seem the people on the inside of that mental box, outside of which they're excluding everything else, appear, many of them, to think that this is not only the best that can be done, but a positively virtuous thing to do. Yeah. And I know it's all upside down and, and, and dark, but I think we have to recognize the people that we are even addressing here in terms of how do you even initiate a conversation if you're going to try with that, anyway,
0: yeah. What what has struck me in all of this is that those who are doing these double mastectomies and mutilating children, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, there's no skin in the game for them other than the money that they're earning, and some are earning incredible amounts of money, and again, big pharma's inc- uh, earning incredible amounts of money. Would there be some room for some legislation around culpability if if you are so certain that this child <clears throat> has what is an immutable gender identity, then you should be willing as a doctor to put your own money on the line. Mm -hmm. You're not covered for this. If this child turns around in five years and says, actually, this was all a grand mistake, then you pay.
3: Yeah, no, I think that would be reasonable. I think we have a right as a society to decide which things we're covering and so on and so forth. I don't expect such legislation to appear anytime soon, though, Ed. I don't either. So in the meantime... Our opposition to this kind of thing is going to be of a different kind. And the main thing is to educate people in our churches about everything we've been talking about today. Because people, even a number of years into this now, when I talk to audiences, the vast majority of people are shocked, surprised, knew nothing about it, didn't, you know. I think that we're not catechizing and we're not teaching. Other people are doing that. Netflix is doing that. We're not doing
0: that. Well, and our educational institutions, Christians among them. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been Rich. Again, once again, we've only scratched the top of the surface with what could be discussed in this, but it is the hope of Biblical Frame that our audience um, has a greater clarity than they have heretofore on this topic, and I just invite the guests here today, uh, the contributors, to give maybe 30 seconds, 15 seconds of a final thought, encouragement to those who are listening.
1: Well, uh, to quote the great um, Old Testament scholar, uh, was it, Graf, the um, end times will, uh, will go back to the start times, uh-huh. the beginning times. Yeah. And as we keep moving down towards the end of history, what we see is a return back to the chaos that uh, started it all. And uh, this is just another example of that. And, um, well, let's be ready for that, and let's arm ourselves with knowledge and truth to fight the good fight.
2: Well, I guess, you know, when you look at The fact that we've had such a transition in our society is because we've been very tolerant and we've been open to new ideas. And I think that's really important. But the same token, I think that much of what we're seeing in terms of the sexual or gender orientation of people has been partly chemical through changes in our environment further reinforced by changes that we see in sociology, how it's being presented, as we mentioned earlier, by Netflix and what's acceptable. And so we are going through those transitions, but we are cleaning up the environment, and we are trying to pay attention to what it is that the audiences have and recognizing the influences of the profit that's coming from industry that, for example, if you look at Hollywood on one side... They're being very virtuous, and yet, at the same time, they're presenting such huge violence in their presentations. And you have to ask, well, why is it acceptable, on one hand, that, that we can be questioning um, gender orientation and that, and, and we try to be tolerant, and I think that's really positive for different cultural backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that there's a very strong profit, you prophet know, um, impetus here that's coming from even Hollywood, as virtuous as it seems to be, and we have to look at all this in that context.
3: Um, the one thing I want to say in closing, specifically to Christian people listening to this podcast, is that um, we, the Church has been here before, and all over the world, the church has never been as it is in the West, and if we are slightly uncomfortable now with the way that we're things are changing and not making us feel at home, I think we'd be wise to step back and say, "Okay, well, actually, what we're doing is just returning to normality." Mm-hmm. The last two hundred years has been incredibly unusual, actually, um, and so just this reframe, re- recalibrate, rethink, adjust to reality. Um, the world may or may not end tomorrow, but it won't end just because you adjust yourself to the truth about it. right So anyway.
0: Ian, just before we pass it over to Douglas, hmm. um, do you have some resources, online resources that people can go to?
3: Well, the best website for this whole suite of issues, in my opinion, one of the best ones is an organization I've been working with called Free to Care, who were at the pointy end of Bill C6 and C4. Really good people. A lot of good stuff on their website, simply freetocares.ca. And if I may, um, there's a whole chapter in my new book on this whole Business Chapter Eighteen of that book, which I think is informative and helpful. The book is entitled "Seeking What Is Right: The Old Testament and the Good Life." So, if people would like a a chapter-length read with all the academic footnotes pointing them to the scientific basis for the the claims I'm making, and so on, that would be probably one of the better places to go.
0: Wonderful, thank you, and Douglas,
5: Um, I'll take the liberty of pointing people to something quite brief and uh, that I wrote uh, and published in 2017 in the journal C2C, um, that's the letter C and the number two in the letter C, um, back in, I was March of 2017 and it's called Cracking the Gender Code. And there I do actually venture uh, to try to say myself what I think this unspecified concept of gender identity is, and people might find that helpful. Um, I I will add that it has puzzled me for some time why governments would, would be so keen on promoting this um, that they would even enact legislation attaching criminal penalties to people who don't promote it and who promote something contrary. I don't have a full answer to that, but I suspect it has something to do with the, the political usefulness of breaking down the populace's... The, the people's attachments to objective reality. Uh, that leaves an awful lot of scope for people who manage the body politic to do things that are objectively, um, inex- that are inexplicable and uh, in, in terms of well-ordering, the, well, the, the proper ordering of society. Now that that may be pushing it a bit too far, but I'll leave I'll leave people with that thought um, that that I don't think we're dealing just with a bunch of do-gooders. I think we're dealing with 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 uh, people who operate only on that level, but we're also dealing with some people who are thinking quite strategically, and we'd best be thinking strategically too.
0: Thanks for that, Douglas, and thank you all for being able to gather together like this and put our minds together and think about very important. Uh, Items that are impacting our world and impacting the church we will have those resources that were just named uh, linked at the bottom of the episode uh, in the notes section so go there if you'd like to follow up on some of these things thanks for joining us Um, strength and peace to each of you until we meet again bye for now